You're listening to the FC Young Adult Podcast. What is good, you guys? Hope you are doing well. Welcome back into the Young Adult Podcast. We are in part three of a series entitled At the Table. What we've been doing is we've been looking at different interactions of Jesus around a table. Um, the first two weeks we spent uh, in Luke chapter 15, and this week we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, the first 10 verses, a story about a man named Zacchaeus. If you grew up in church, you probably heard of Zacchaeus before, and I'm, I'm kind of fudging the system a little bit here um, because I, it doesn't say that they actually share a meal, but Jesus does go to Zacchaeus' house, so we're going to count it, uh, and we're going to assume that they sat around a table as they had a conversation. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. If you missed the first two there, uh, I would really encourage you to go back there right here on the podcast, first two episodes, um, and then we'll continue here in part three. So we're going to start uh, 19th chapter of Luke, verses 1 through 2. It says, he, that being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So just like we talked about the last two weeks, tax collectors uh, were really, really hated. Um, and it's important that we understand that, that that Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. So tax collectors were hated by the Jews because they were in uh, cahoots with the Roman government. They were taking money off the top. They were extorting people. They were they were doing terrible things to their own Jewish people in order to profit themselves. And because it says, Luke makes it really clear that he was rich. He was a chief tax collector. He had extorted a lot of people. He had stolen a lot of money. He would made a lot of people mad. He was not liked by that community of people at all. So that gives us a little bit of contextual foundation as we continue through the story. So we'll continue on in uh, verse 3. It says, he was trying to see who Jesus was. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd since he was a short man. This is probably why you might have known who Zacchaeus was if you grew up in church because there was a song called Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Yeah, we we sang it. We saw the flannel board story, all those types of things. Um, So he was not able to because of the crowd since he was a short man, but he was trying to see Jesus. The first point this week is never underestimate the power of curiosity. Never underestimate the power of curiosity. He was trying to see who Jesus was. I think at the core of our lives, we are trying to see who Jesus is. No matter where we find ourselves, whether we've been following Jesus for a really long time or we're just trying to figure this out for the first time, we're, we're trying to see who Jesus is. We're trying to see what Jesus is about, who he is, what his character is, what his heart is. And if we want a thriving relationship with Jesus, we must remain curious. We must remain curious. If we don't, I think there are several different outcomes, but I want to look at two possible outcomes of of followers of Jesus who refuse to remain curious about him. A first outcome would be a boring stagnancy, a boring stagnancy. Uh, I have three kids. They're amazing. I'm the most blessed dad in the world. My oldest, Maddox, is nine. And he is the most curious kid I know. And it's awesome and also can simultaneously be a little bit annoying as a parent as you're trying to get something done and your kid just asks you so many questions. Maddox is fascinated by everything. He wants to know. He's like, how far is it from here to there? How big is it here? How many people live here? What kind of animal is this? What do you think would happen if? Like he just asks so many different questions. And it's awesome because 
while he's one of the most curious kids I've ever met, he's also one of the smartest kids I've ever met. And I think part of the reason that he has the smarts and why he has wisdom is because he asks really good questions. And the, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about time zones. He just like got super fascinated by time zones. And it started with a conversation because our daughter, our middle child, is from Ethiopia. So he's like, what time is it there right now? compared to what time is it right here right now? He's like, that's crazy. Like, why is it so much different? Like, so we had conversations. It's like, hey, man, in the United States, we even have different time zones. So we talked about, like, we talked about Eastern. We talked about Central. We talked about Mountain. We talked about Pacific. Like, we talked about all these different things. And on Monday night, uh, the Cowboys and the Bucks were playing a playoff game. And he walks downstairs. We're kind of getting ready for bed. I was, like, warming up their rice bags, doing our, like, nightly routine. It's, like, 8.30. And he's like, Dad, Tampa Bay's in Florida. And I was like, yeah. That is that is correct. And he's like, this game's being played in Florida. Yes, also correct. And he's like, it's 1030 there right now. I was like, yep. And he's like, and it's only the third quarter? I was like, yep. And he's like, man, they're going to play really, really late. I was like, that is very good. And then he just walked away and went back to bed. But I was just like, man, that is hilarious and also fascinating and also just amazing to watch his brain work. And I believe that Maddox will not become stagnant, stagnant in the way that he pursues knowledge because he's going to continue to ask questions. I think that that's how we need to approach our faith, that we should be people who are constantly asking questions of Jesus, about Jesus, to Jesus. Like nothing about Jesus is going to be annoyed if we ask questions. He created us to be relational and a part of relationships is asking questions. So let us be people who never stop being curious. If we stop being curious, another possible outcome is this, a prideful complacency. That we become people who think that we have it all figured out. Like, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Oh, yeah, this, this, and this. I have the answer. All of those different things. We become people who are prideful, and we simultaneously become people who are complacent. We start making definitive statements on all things, and we have no room for understanding, for our understanding to be challenged, and we have no real desire to understand things that maybe we could get uh, shifted on, maybe we could gain more understanding of, that, that we do not become people who are like, yeah, I have figured it out we should want to be shaken up regularly if we if what we understood 10 years ago is still like the what we understand now that's really sad that if we haven't figured out or learned anything in the last 10 years that would be a real bummer like in our education if what you learned when you were in second grade is just where you ended man you you wouldn't be a very high functioning adult if you just refused to learn anything new since then so as a follower of Jesus, if you've been following Jesus for 10 years or more, I hope that you've learned new things about Jesus. I hope that 10 years from now, we all know more than we do now, that we would become people who remain curious. Would we refuse to be people who become stagnant or complacent about our curiosity when it comes to Jesus? In fact, Zacchaeus in this story, his curiosity is what leads to the entire rest of the story. If he had not become curious, the rest of the story might not have happened at all. So let's continue. Verse 4. It says, So running ahead, he climbed a sip he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. I want to ask a question. What do we need to do to get a good view of Jesus? What do you need to do to get a good view of Jesus? You see, if you cannot see Jesus from where you're at, move. If you cannot seem to see Jesus where you're at in life right now, move. You are not required to stay put. 
Put yourself in a position to see Jesus. That means being willing to shift your life, your relationships, your habits, how you spend your time, all of those different things. For Zacchaeus, a physical thing, his his lack of height was keeping him from seeing Jesus. So he physically climbed a tree. So there was a physical barrier. So he dis- he made a physical decision to climb the tree. And maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe that's me. That there is actually like our physical location. We need to move our physical location in order to experience Jesus the way that we think we need to experience Jesus. Maybe. But more likely, the barriers that you're experiencing when it comes to seeing Jesus are probably spiritual or relational. Those are the things that usually get in the way of us seeing Jesus. And if there's a spiritual barrier between you seeing Jesus, between you and seeing Jesus, you're probably going to have to take a spiritual action and you're going to have to change something spiritually in your life. I had one of our young adults come up to us last night and he just said, hey, like you said, like you might have to do something different spiritual. Like, what does that mean? I was like, that's a, that's a great question. I said, that can look a lot of different ways. I'm not saying that you don't keep pursuing Jesus. We, we agree, I hope, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. Like Jesus is it. He is the benchmark. He is everything. He's at the center of everything that we do. But I said, hey, in your spiritual practices, how you pray, how you read your Bible, all those different things, those things don't have to be how you did them five years ago. I grew up with a very specific way to read the Bible. Through youth group, we used uh, the Life Journal, which was the Bible in a year, and you pretty much read a chapter in the New Testament, a chapter in the Old Testament, and a psalm. And then we did SOAP, which was Scripture, Observation, Application, Prayer. Awesome. So good for me as a teenager. So many different things. But I remember when I started getting older, I was like, man, the monotony of this is starting to wear on me and I'm not engaging the way that I used to engage. And I told one of my mentors that and he said, then stop doing it. Who told you that you have to do that? And I'm like, you did. You're the one who taught it to me. And he's like, I taught you how to read the Bible in a specific way, but that doesn't mean it's the only way to do it. And I was like, oh, and it changed the game. And since then, over the last 15 years, how I've done my personal time with Jesus has shifted so many different times. Where I've prayed, how I've prayed, postures, like physical postures on my knees, at the side of my bed, while I'm on a walk, whatever it may be, we have to be willing to shift something spiritually if the barrier seems to be spiritual. And then sometimes the the relational barrier is what gets us. Sometimes it's a shift in relationship. We need to change the relationships they're in. We have to move groups of people. We have to say no to certain things. We have to step out of relationship or step into a new one in order for us to see Jesus the way that he wants us to see see him in a specific season. So Zacchaeus did something physical because the barrier was physical. But for us, we have to be willing to sit back, assess, and identify what the barriers seem to be that are keeping us from seeing Jesus the way that we want to see Jesus. And then we can make a plan on how to interact with those things. Uh, So many times I've said this, so many times I've heard people say this as I've stepped into mentorship roles and all that, the phrase, I'm just not experiencing Jesus like I used to. That's a reality for many of us at certain seasons, but it doesn't have to be a reality for for long because this is the truth. If you're not seeing Jesus or you're not experiencing Jesus the way that you used to be, then move from the location that you used to be. Don't sit in the same location that you used to be when you experienced Jesus in that way and expect to continue to experience him in the ways that you used to experience him. You have to be willing to move. I have to be willing to move. We have to say, 
okay, I'm not, I'm going to refuse to just stick my feet in the ground and never move from the spot because seasons change, life change, expectations change, like all these different things change. We have to be willing to move with it. And who Jesus was calling you to be five years ago, there, there's going to be elements of it, like the character elements that stay the same. But believe me, Jesus calls you to specific things in specific seasons, and it's not always going to be the same old thing for the next 70 years. Thank God for that, right? Because if he was asking us to just do the same thing over and over and over again, life would get a little bit boring. But he's going to use you, he's going to equip you, and he's going to challenge you in new ways and new seasons. Move with him. Move with him. Okay, Uh, Luke chapter 19 goes on to say this in verse chapter 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. The next point is this, is that you might not know Jesus, but he knows you. You might not know Jesus, but he knows you. I love that Zacchaeus was doing whatever he could do to see who Jesus was. And what I love even more than that is that Jesus knew exactly who Zacchaeus was already. That Jesus didn't have to go looking for Zacchaeus. He knew exactly where he was. He looked up and he said, Zacchaeus. He didn't just call him. He called him by name. He knew how, who Zacchaeus was. You might not know Jesus, but Jesus knows you. One of the most incredible things about following Jesus is that he knows us to the core of our being. And that truth is not dependent on how much effort we're putting into knowing him. Let me say that again. Jesus's knowledge of us is not dependent on our knowledge of him. We don't have to spend years getting to know Jesus for him to know who we are. He created us. He knows us to the very fibers and fabric of our being. It's not dependent on our effort in at getting to know him. But this is the beautiful thing about following Jesus. Because he knows us perfectly, as we get to know Jesus, we start understanding ourselves more. We start finding our identity in Christ, and it changes absolutely everything. If we want to truly discover the men and the women that we are called to be, the best place to start is discovering the heart of Christ. The story goes on to say in verse 6, so Luke chapter 19, verse 6, so Zacchaeus quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. The next question that I want to ask is, do we respond joyfully? Jesus walks into this dude's life and he's going to flip it upside down. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. There's no way that at this point that Zacchaeus hadn't heard at least a story or two about what had happened. Because he was hated by the Jewish people, he was ostracized from being in a relationship with them. He was friends with other tax collectors. He was friends with other sinners, with Roman centurions, those types of people. Well, what we saw the last two weeks in Luke chapter 15, four chapters prior to this, is Jesus changed the life of the Apostle Matthew. There's no way that Zacchaeus hadn't heard that story yet. And Zacchaeus knew that something was about to go down, and he came down quickly and welcomed Jesus joyfully. The question that I want to ask is, do we? Do we respond joyfully when Jesus asks us something? If there's a chance that our life is going to get flipped upside down, are we willing to say yes Jesus, do it. See, the idea of becoming who God has called us to be will probably be a little bit terrifying because our humanity will fight against that, but it will absolutely, it should absolutely be exciting for us to say, Jesus, shake it up. I don't know where it's going to land, but I know that what you have for me is the best because if we can honestly ask ourselves if we're willing to let Jesus shake things up, hopefully we know that the shaking will be for our benefit. 
and we trust that Jesus will do only what is in our best interests. Verse 7 goes on to say this, All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. So they see Jesus walk in. They see Jesus identify Zacchaeus, invite him down and say, Hey, tonight I'm going to stay at your house. And they say he's gone to stay with a sinful man. So here we go again. This was the common theme in the Jewish people. Wow, he's going to stay with a tax collector, this guy who has been nothing but corrupt. He has stolen. He has lied. All of these different things. And Jesus is going to go give him time. People complaining that Jesus would give his valuable time about a sin to a sinner. But I want to ask this question. Is a move of God in the life of someone else less valuable than a move of God in our own life? Is a move of God in the life of someone else less valuable than a move of God in our own life? Of course not. Of course not. A move of God in anyone's life is incredibly valuable, and we should celebrate those things. Are we, are we willing to admit that everyone needs Jesus? I hope so. I hope we can admit everybody needs Jesus. Everybody needs a move of God. And if we are already surrendered to Jesus, are we willing to admit arguably that somebody who has not experienced the forgiveness of Jesus yet needs a move of God more than you and I? Undeniably, we need a move of God in our life. I need Jesus to move in my life every single day because I am broken and messy and fallible. But would I, if, if I got to choose... This is, a, this is a really important question. If I got to choose whether or not God moved in my life or in the life of somebody that I love who doesn't know Jesus yet, what would I choose? I hope that every time I would say, move in their life, Jesus. I have freedom. I have forgiveness. I want them to have that too. Move in their life. But if we are willing to, willing to admit that a move of God in someone else's life is not less valuable than a move of God in our own life, and if we are willing to admit that we should be somebody who have postured ourselves in a way that would choose somebody else experiencing God over us experiencing God, can we also admit this, is that God is not relegated to our understanding of the move of God. The, the move of God in someone else's life does not negate his ability to move in ours hear me, I want to say that again because it's so important that we understand this. I needed to hear this. The move of God, a move of God in someone else's life does not negate his ability to move in ours. You see, too often we treat Jesus, we treat God like this high capacity mentor who only has so many appointments available and only has so much bandwidth and only has so much time. But, but God is not a mentor. Like that is a aspect of who he is, but God is Lord. He is creator. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. And his ability to move in our life is not negated when he spends capacity moving in somebody else's life. So can we just celebrate when God is moving in somebody's life? And instead of being like, why are you spending time moving in their life, Lord? Would you say, oh, that is so amazing. I'm going to applaud that. I'm going to clap for that. I'm going to cheer that on. I'm going to say, and do it in my life too, because I know that you can. Because I know that you can. Jesus wants to move in our life. So let's celebrate that, but let's also celebrate the fact that he wants to move in the lives of people around us. The story goes on to say, uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 8, says, but Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I love that. Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. This is what I love about this statement from Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Like Luke makes that really 
clear right off the top, right? So really what he's saying is, I'll give half my possessions to the poor Lord, and I have extorted things from people, and I'm going to pay them back four times as much. This is a, a statement. This isn't like a, oh, well, maybe. No, he's like, I understand. I understand the frustration. I understand what I've done. I understand the life that I lived up to this point. I'm thankful that you're here in my home. I'm thankful that you're willing to step in relationship with me. And one of the ways that I want to show my appreciation for that is to step in to a forgiveness process, a repentant process. You see, this is the tax collector. This is the sinner. This is the, the, the messy guy, right? And yet he teaches us a really big lesson. Avoid a spirit of defensiveness. Avoid a spirit of defensiveness. It's so easy for us to get defensive, isn't it? It's so easy for us to get defensive. Uh, I, about a year ago, I took over a new position. I was offered a position with our denomination um, in the Northwest District of our denomination. So there's 288 churches, and uh, me and uh, the other side of my position, an incredible woman named Lori. Lori, if you're listening to this, shout out to Lori Snyder in Spokane. She's incredible. Um and we we took on this new role of this regional pastor where we get to like pastor pastors in our district. And I was really, really humbled. I was really, really scared when I got the call from my supervisor, Reed. He was like, hey, like, I want you to take this position. I'm like, not me. You got the wrong number. Like, I had to walk through a prayer process of this. I was like, Some, there's got to be a mistake here. Like, why me? And yet the Lord just said, like, hey, I, I want you to step into this. So I stepped into it. It's been absolutely incredible. I've loved every minute of it. But it's funny, not even like a week into taking the position, I had somebody like on the phone, they're like, why you? Like, why are you taking this position? And even though I had already experienced like the question myself, like, why me? My response was defensiveness. And I, you know, got my chest all puffed up and was like, well, I've been doing, you know, next gen ministry for 10 years and I know, I know what I'm doing and man, it's been, it's been great and this, this and this and like trying to throw out my qualifications and I get to the end of that and he's like, huh, okay. Like not impressed, not really convinced, whatever. And I was just like, I don't feel good about that. Like, I don't feel good at trying to qualify myself because I am undeniably unqualified to one, follow Jesus, but two, step into this role. So I left that so like just beat up, walked into an office of one of the other pastors here on staff, had him pray for me. He's like, it just sounds like there's a spirit, spirit of defensiveness. Like when it comes to this, I think we should pray against that. And I was like, please, like, let's do that. We prayed against it. Not even a week later, another person less, probably less aggressive was just like, so why you? Like, why did you take this position? And I just said, you know what? I have no idea. Like the Lord has just given me an opportunity, super blessed by it. I hope to be challenged by it. I hope to be learned by it, learn from it. I, I have no idea. I did not try to qualify myself at all. Just tried to be as humble as I possibly could. And she goes, I think, I think you're the right guy. And I'm really excited to see what God does through this. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. So wait, I avoided a spirit of defensiveness and the response was positive. I had a spirit of defensiveness, spirit of defensiveness and the result, the response was negative. That is a lesson that I want to take with me every day that I should be somebody who avoids a spirit of de defensiveness. And Zacchaeus in this moment, 100%, he avoids a spirit of defensiveness. And so he's saying like, wait, 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 wait. Like my life is on the line. Like they would, if I wouldn't have done this job, they could have, the Romans could have killed me. And like, he could have tried to like work his way around of why he lied, why he cheated, why he extorted people. But instead he goes, look, I get it. I get it. And because I get it, I'll give away half my possessions to the poor. And, and if I've extorted anything, because I know I have, I'm going to pay people back four times as much as I've extorted from them. Like this is an incredible repentance. This is incredible posture from Zacchaeus. The question is, are we willing to be repentant if we need to ask for forgiveness? 
Are we willing to stop and actually seek that which we need to step into? Would we become people? I'm convinced of this. If we were people who aggressively pursued forgiveness for ourselves and we aggressively offered forgiveness to the people around us, we would change the world. We would change our communities. I think the Billings, Montana would change. I think that Montana in general would change. I think the United States would change if we became a community of people who committed to radical, aggressive forgiveness. The passage ends in verses 9 and 10, and this is Jesus' response to Zacchaeus. It says, Today, salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him. And then it says, Because he, too, is the son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. So the last point is this, a declaration to Zacchaeus and a declaration to everyone. Jesus speaks to Zacchaeus and assures him that salvation was his. What a moment for a man who had lived a not-so-great life up to this point, and also a man who probably carried extreme guilt and extreme shame for what he had done up to this point. But then Jesus says, he, because he too is a son of Abraham. So you can just imagine Jesus looking at Zacchaeus and saying, today salvation has come to this house, Zacchaeus. Like you're forgiven. I'm offering this to you. Forgiveness, salvation is yours. And then turning to everyone else who is there and saying, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. You see, Jesus didn't come to high-five the righteous and say, hey, great job. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Very similar to what he said in Luke chapter 15 when he said, you see, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I'm here to heal. I'm here to heal the sick, to bring restoration to the broken. Would we understand that? Would we understand that, one, salvation has come to us if we would just receive it. The salvation will come to our house if we just receive it. No matter what we've done up to this point, no matter what not-so-great life we've lived up to this point, whether we have sinned in sexual ways, whether we have sinned in, in financial ways, whether we have sinned in relational ways, whether we have sinned in, in whatever way it is that we've sinned, would we understand that no matter what we have done up to this point, no matter what, Jesus says, salvation can come to this house if you would just receive it. If you would just say, Lord, Lord, not just Savior, not just thanks for saving me, but Lord, I want you to Lord over my life. I want to surrender my life to you. I want to be in submission to you for the rest of my life. If we would say that, if we would admit that Jesus will make our life way better than it could ever be on its own, salvation is available to us right now in this moment. And secondly, would we understand that that truth is amazing and there's so much joy in that, but we can't just sit in the joy of understanding the forgiveness of Jesus. We also are called to partner with Jesus so that everybody in our life can experience that same forgiveness and that same joy, that same mercy, that we don't just high-five each other and say, hey, did you punch your ticket to heaven? Me too. Like, great, let's sit on our hands and do nothing for the rest of our lives and be completely unproductive when it comes to letting people how much know how much they're loved. No, we don't just sit in the joy of the truth that salvation is offered to us but we do whatever we can to make sure that every single person knows that that same salvation is offered to them. So let's do whatever we can in this season to see Jesus. Maybe we need to step back and assess where are we at? Is there a spiritual barrier? Is there a relational barrier? Is there a physical barrier keeping me from seeing Jesus the way that I need to see Jesus in this season? And what am I going to do to stop that? Remember, spiritual spiritual barriers require spiritual responses. Relational barriers create require relational responses. Physical barriers require physical 
responses. So let's be people who, who are willing to assess that and then watch Jesus change everything. Thank you for listening to the FC Young Adult Podcast. If you are in the Billings area, we would love to see you at our in-person gatherings on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. If you're unable to attend in person, there are always ways to engage online. Follow along through Instagram at faithchapel.ya or find our ministry page at faithchapel.cc. You are loved.